Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to Adventures in Security, Episode 9 for January 15th, 2006. I'm your host, Tom Olzak. This is a weekly podcast published each Sunday evening, sometime before midnight. You can also find most of the information covered in our sessions at adventuresinsecurity.com. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like us to talk about, please send email to podcasts at adventuresinsecurity.com. The purpose of this podcast is the exploration of security management, including the crazy things people try to do to each other and to themselves. The feature topic in this episode is securing stored data. But let's take a look at our current events segment before we move on. Sales of thin clients are increasing. According to IDC, thin client purchases grew 46% in 2005 when compared to 2004. Like traditional personal computers, thin client desktops are connected to the network and they run popular operating systems. But unlike their fat client cousins, thin clients possess no local storage and processing is typically done on a local or remote server. Applications that run on thin clients reside on central storage, making updates easy and less expensive than those for applications distributed across hundreds or thousands of personal computers. From a security perspective, thin clients resist malware infections because there's no storage on which a virus, worm, trojan, or spyware can set up shop. Further, thin client configuration is controlled from a central point, making configuration fiddling much harder and easy to automatically reverse. Because of lower help desk, deployment, and management costs, Bloor Research estimates the overall savings realized through replacing desktops with laptops at 70%. So why not run into the office tomorrow and start tossing out personal computers? The answer is your users. Users have historically seen thin clients as limiting their ability to use favorite applications from home, downloaded from the internet, or even authorized by department managers. Add to this the fact that connecting PDAs and iPods might be extremely difficult, if not impossible, and rebellion is imminent. In the not-too-distant past, my team received a shipment of thin clients from one of our satellite offices. Feelings were so strong against their use that the office manager packed them up and shipped them back to us at the corporate office. She then demanded PC replacements. Given the reduced cost of ownership and the security advantages associated with thin client use, I believe it's important to assess the possibility of using these devices in your environment. The following steps might make this a little easier. First, don't approach this as a complete re-engineering of your desktops. Rather, you should evaluate where thin clients make sense. Some possible candidates are shared plant floor or administrative workstations, and workstations in highly sensitive areas or that process highly sensitive data. Second, once you identify thin client implementation opportunities, work with the affected employees to help them understand the need to remove personal computers. This might not be an easy task, but it'll help with employee acceptance and it'll minimize frustration. Third, and finally, Make sure the thin client is capable of running all appropriate applications that the employees use to perform their daily tasks. This will help with acceptance, and you'll reduce the probability that you'll be accused of reducing productivity in your efforts to provide a more secure environment at a lower cost.
Our next story has to do with the TCP IP suite. The push for IPv6 is getting stronger. This renewed interest in the replacement standard for the current TCP IP suite of protocols, known as IPv4, is driven by promised improvements in anti-spam, antivirus, software security, and quality of service. IPv6 was originally developed in the 1990s to not only fix issues with TCP IP, it was also intended to address the growing shortage of IP addresses. IPv6 implementation slowed as technologies like Network Address Translation, or NAT, reduced the number of IP addresses home and business users required to communicate over public networks. But the recent rapid increase in the use of IP networks, IPTV, and voice over IP are once again threatening to exhaust the supply of usable addresses. Some of the business advantages to deploying IPv6 include a virtually unlimited number of IP addresses. In IPv6, the number of bits used to build a network device address increases from 32 to 128. This increases the number of available addresses by a factor in the billions. There's also improved quality of service. According to Cisco, quality of service, or QoS, is a general term used to describe a network's ability to customize how to handle specific classes of data. For example, QoS can be used to prioritize video transmissions over web browsing traffic. Advanced networks can offer greater control over how data traffic is classified into classes and greater flexibility as to how the treatment of that traffic is differentiated from other traffic. New features built into IPv6 optimize performance and network congestion management. Finally, it brings with it enhanced security. Security can be implemented at the router level, enabling security capabilities for all TCP IP traffic passing over the network. IPv6 allows for two devices to authenticate with each other when attempting to establish a connection. IP spoofing, or faking an IP address to attack a network, is eliminated. And although some of the IPv6 security enhancements are defined for optional use in IPv4, they are mandatory in IPv6. As acceptance of IPv6 grows, there will be a few challenges. Many network devices don't support IPv6. A careful assessment of your network is necessary to identify possible upgrade problems. Your network engineering teams may have to upgrade their addressing skills as use of the more complex IPv6 suite grows and some applications will have to be rewritten. As a manager, you need to be looking ahead to ensure you're not eventually left with an obsolete network infrastructure. Steps you can take include ensuring that all new network devices support IPv6, plan to upgrade operating systems on desktops, servers, and handheld devices to integrate them into the IPv6 world, and train your engineering and development teams. You don't have to run out and start implementing all these recommendations tomorrow. IPv6 is designed to work on the same networks and on the same network devices in many cases as IPv4. It may take several years before IPv4 is relegated to history. On the other hand, don't fail to add this to your business's technology roadmap. As U.S. businesses have been lulled into a sense of security about the continued use of IPv4, Businesses in other countries are well down the road to full IPv6 implementation. 
Asian countries, for example, are requiring the use of IPv6 addressing under certain conditions. This has resulted in Japan having almost 500,000 IPv6 users, compared to less than 2,000 users in the U.S. Our last story covers the launch of a new federal government website dedicated to security awareness. OnGuardOnline.gov, which debuted this week, provides resources directed at consumer awareness of the dangers of using a personal computer in today's globally connected environment. I visited the site and looked at the tools available. This isn't a bad attempt by federal agencies to help secure the national infrastructure. The first thing I looked at were the training videos. If you need cool special effects to stay interested, this probably isn't the place for you, but information is provided in an interesting and effective manner. The current list of topics include teaching kids to be safe online, protecting your privacy, reducing spam, and malware defense. In addition to videos, there are also tutorials on how to secure desktops and deal with spam. To make sure visitors are actually getting it, OnGuard Online provides a series of quizzes designed to test your knowledge of the basic principles covered elsewhere on the site. If you answer a question incorrectly, the quiz application provides the right answer with a brief explanation. You may have asked early in this story what this has to do with protecting your business. Well, I believe that anyone who's focused on secure computing at home will bring that focus to the workplace. Even more significant is the fact that many Internet attacks are launched using compromised home PCs. Focusing on your business, OnGuard Online provides some suggestions from how to integrate their tools into your security program. First, you can link to OnGuard Online Gov from your website. You can obtain free buttons and banners from the site. You can include OnGuard Online information in your print and online newsletters. The articles at the site are free. You can distribute OnGuard Online publications in your workplace. You can include their tips, address, and messages on product packaging, shopping bags, or receipts. You can create your own web page for consumers covering how to use the Internet safely. Every PC connected to the Internet is a potential launching point for attacks against your business. Educating your employees and the public about how to protect their systems from compromise is in the best interest of you and your investors. That completes the current events segment of this episode, so let's move on to the featured topic, securing stored data. Over the past few years, companies have improved the security for information that moves across the Internet and other public connections. However, little attention has been paid to stored data. In previous episodes, we've discussed the growing problem of personal information compromise. According to John Pescator at Gartner, 5 million consumer accounts were reported compromised between 2000 and 2005. This is estimated to be less than 20% of the total number of actual compromises. Although the biggest reason for unauthorized release of personal information appears to be lost backup tapes, there are many other ways an attacker can access credit card numbers, protected health information, passwords, account IDs, banking information, or social security numbers. Because of most organizations' focus on securing the network perimeter, while largely ignoring internal network protection, once an attacker cracks through a firewall or other perimeter device, he can usually take his pick of databases, flat files, or email message stores he would like to browse. Data storage vulnerabilities are increasing because of the trend to consolidate files and data 
on centralized storage devices such as storage area networks and network-attached storage. Getting access to a single device may provide access to a large amount of information that's valuable to profit-minded hackers. Penalties for not preventing accidental or malicious exposure of sensitive information goes beyond fines that might be associated with regulatory constraints like those related to HIPAA. A business could also experience a public and investor loss of confidence leading to business failure. Facing these issues, what can businesses do to protect their customers, employees, and themselves? Encrypting data at rest seems to be one answer, but like all new ideas, this one seems to be moving in the direction of overkill. Some organizations are encrypting all production data without looking at the value of doing so or how the encryption process fits into an overall data protection strategy. Encrypting stored data can be expensive and often intrusive to the way your employees work. Make sure you're doing it for the right business reasons. In a Gartner research paper entitled, Use the Three Laws of Encryption to Properly Protect Data, Rich Mogul describes what he believes are the types of data that organizations should encrypt. Law 1. Encrypt data that moves. Laptops are a great candidate for encryption. Once an attacker gets her hands on a laptop, there are many ways she can pull unencrypted data from the hard disk without knowing the user's password. Encrypting the information stored on the laptop's drive goes a long way towards strong data protection. Another storage medium, and one that seems to be in the news more than it should, is the venerable backup tape. Tapes are often misplaced. Even if the information is never compromised, the public disclosure of a tape loss incident can damage an organization. Email containing sensitive data should also be encrypted. Email messages are stored in message stores in your mail servers. Like databases, these message stores can contain sensitive information about customers and employees, but information stored in a message store can also include sensitive information about your network, information an attacker can use to dig even deeper into your information assets. Finally, there are the portable devices. USB storage devices, CD-ROMs, and DVDs can hold a great deal of sensitive information. If one of your users copies employee information to a CD, then leaves the CD unsecured on his desk when he leaves for the night, no level of access control is going to protect that data if found by the wrong person. Law 2. Encrypt for separation of duties when access controls aren't granular enough. Application access controls often don't allow you to set field-level permissions. If a user has access to a customer or employee record, she can view all information about that person. Encrypting information in these fields is one way to prevent access outside of a need-to-know requirement. Most organizations provide shared folder areas so departments and teams can share information. After all, this is one of the principles upon which networking is built. But denying access to some files or subfolders may be necessary to enforce least privilege, which is the concept that a user should only have access to data required to perform his daily duties. Encrypting certain files can enforce another level of access control. And Law 3. Encrypt when somebody tells you to. No matter how well you employ risk management principles to make sure you're making the best use of your security resources, you'll always have to contend with regulatory constraints. After you've taken a risk-based look at your stored data, take another look to ensure you're taking the steps necessary to protect your business from the consequences of failing to comply with federal, state, and local requirements. Once you decide what to encrypt, 
you need to select the right encryption solution. There are many ways to accomplish this. Here are a couple of suggestions. For storage area network encryption, consider an inline appliance that encrypts data on its way to storage and decrypts it as it moves from storage to a calling application or user. Appliances add very little overhead to the encryption process. However, they don't scale very well for distributed storage environments. For distributed environments, agents that reside on the servers or network-attached storage devices to be encrypted are a better choice. Centrally managed, the cost of administration can be kept at a manageable level. A major downside is the potential performance hit your systems may take because encryption and decryption are facilitated in software rather than hardware. Encrypting your stored data should be part of a layered security strategy designed to secure data stored in your enterprise. There is no replacement for traditional physical, administrative, and logical access controls. Data storage encryption should just be one more tool in your security arsenal. For more information on protecting stored data, visit adventuresinsecurity.com in February to download a data security paper to be published on or about February 15th. Well, that's it for this week. I hope we were able to make your life a little easier. Until next time, be careful what you click.